Hello, Diana. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Jane. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to Should We? A conversation with friends about the everyday choices that make us. Today, I think I'll introduce Jane to Diana and to our listeners. Jane Tite is an executive and leadership master coach, an Enneagram teacher and certified radical collaboration trainer. You also co-founded Sea Change Partners in 2004. You work with CEOs, executive teams, venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, and nonprofits. You have been married for more than 30 years. You have four sons and a pet chicken. That's right. Oh, and then the most important part is that Jane was my coach while I was at Dropbox. So thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Nice to meet you, Diana. Nice to meet you, Jane. My first question, very important, is should we have chickens? I didn't know this piece about you. Chickens are wonderful. I'm really a dog person. But we sort of finished our time with having dogs because we like to have more flexibility at this stage. And chickens are really easy. They don't take much time, and they birth these beautiful, bright orange, yellow yolked eggs for us every day. And yesterday they were out running around with us as we were gardening in our vegetable garden. Wow, wow. And so... Uh, In terms of flexibility, how much flexibility do they give you? Well, actually, to be honest, they give me a lot of flexibility because my husband is the primary caretaker of the chickens (laughs) and the bees. But um, they just need to, if you give them food and water, you know, every few days, you know, we have a container, self-fills, then... There well. We have them in a in a large coop. Wow. It sounds like they walk themselves as well, which dogs do not. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Did you do a lot of research before getting chickens or did you just plunge right into it? We're more the plunge type. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question, which is should we become coaches? The context on this is that I'm going to become a coach, so uh, so that is that is the context. But I'm very curious about your answer from personal experience. My experience is, it, you know, it's like a life calling for me. I got in very, very early before anybody knew what coaching really was. They thought, when I explained it, they thought maybe I should have a whistle around my neck and have people running around fields. And when I explained more about what I did, they said, don't you talk to your minister about that or your psychologist about that? So I got in very early, and I feel very lucky that way. I think what studying to be a coach teaches you is a way of being in the world. And I think the world needs us all to be coaches to each other, to listen deeply, to be present, to encourage each other. And yet you learn how to hold boundaries around that. So that's the part of I think the coaching training is really valuable. 
and I want more coaches in the world. The practicality of starting a business as a coach, it's a very low entry point. Coaches are now a dime of dozen. So that's something to consider um, when thinking about quitting your day job. <laughs> <laughs> this is very interesting for me because that's exactly why I'm doing coaching training is for the way of being in the world. I have a job that I really like that I'll have for a while if I'm lucky. And uh, having had great experiences being coached, I was enamored of this combination of boundaries and encouragement without answers. Right. Uh, and that uh, that was really uh, unusual and unique and made me want to be able to give that to others. Did you find that you were that way before you trained, or was there even training when you got into it? Yes, I trained with Coaches Training Institute, which is local here. And at that time, they had one office up in San Rafael. I learned from the founders. We arrived at the office. We pushed the desks out of the way and pulled chairs up. They had this big vision to, you know, be involved in prisons and in the Middle East and, you know, really infect the whole world with this thinking. And I must admit, I kind of rolled my eyes. I said, yeah, right. And darn if they aren't doing it, not just them, but all of the training. And did I learn something or was I naturally like that? Yeah. Was it more uh, a reinforcement of natural tendencies for you or a counterbalance to alternative tendencies? It was, it followed a natural path that I'd already been on. But I really learned some things, some really important things about how coaches, um, yeah, again, need to hold their own boundaries and not have an agenda for the other person. And a lot of other things, different perspectives that people can have and uh, not solving problems for other people. (laughs) I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where were you in life when you decided to become a coach? What was that decision-making process like? So... I studied a long time ago to be a speech and language pathologist, and I had a private practice. And what I say now is, you know, I studied disorders of communication and worked with a wide range, everything from infants and preschoolers up through geriatric to um, people that were trying to change change their accent learning disabilities all over the map. I was on a hospice team. And it was a really full and robust experience with disorders of communication. And during that time, I was birthing my four wonderful young boys who are now young men. And my husband and I moved, and the family, we moved to live in Europe for a couple of years. And Kind of right before that time and during that time, I had the opportunity to do facilitation of women's groups. And I got my first taste of working with bright, motivated, heartfelt women who wanted to live full lives. Maybe it had successful careers and then were now home. And how do I manage this new constellation of my life? And I found I really liked that space. When we moved home from Europe, 
I uh, looked at my speech practice, which I had had a junior partner work while I was gone, and I felt like I'd been there, done that. And it was before internet, and I was at my friend's, and there was literally a postcard on her kitchen counter that had come in the mail talking about coaching. And I thought, well, I've been a tennis coach. And I flipped it over, and I read the description of coaching, and it, it, it felt like a hit <laughs> in the chest. Then my judging mind popped in, and I thought, oh, my gosh, Marin County, crystals, peacock feathers, I, you know, this is going to be weird. And I come from a field that has a code of ethics and all. And then I thought, you know, I have to listen. I have to go for one session and see what it's like. So I just trusted myself to go. And once I went, I knew it was right. Wow. Wow, what a story. It sounds like such a moment of serendipity with the postcard that you were sort of preparing yourself for all along. Yes, and I have kind of a I have a very spiritual side. And when I first started coaching, again, I still had some young children and so I was very much called to facilitate women's groups in the kind of the spiritual space. And then as life changed, I started coaching women who said, you know, I've just been called to run this organization and I have a couple of teenage boys and I don't know if I can do this. Will you coach me? Sure. And then they said, would you come into my executive team and work with me on site? Well, I had never worked in a company before, and I was incredibly intimidated by that. So that was a process of me kind of growing. And then I felt sort of like I was selling out, leaving the personal side behind and the spiritual. And then I realized organizations are made up of people, and people need their stories to be listened to as well and to be supported and and to grow as human beings. Mm, something about that resonates with me so much because I went to divinity school after college, and at the time, I never expected that I would work at a company. Uh, I thought about all different settings for how I would work, academia, more spiritual settings, uh, publishing, but like not so much in business. Uh, and I would say among my peers in that program, working in business didn't seem like an honorable path or a very desirable one. I also had many classmates who were changing careers from working in business to ministry or, or something like that. And so it was a little dissonant for me at first, once I started working in technology, to kind of reconcile my path up to then with, with what I had started to do and what I had started to love. But at a certain point, I've started to see how my training <laughs> in divinity school actually um, helps me a lot in, in the workplace. These frameworks of learning about 
how communities coalesce and what really moves people, it applies very easily from religion to business to technology. It sure does. You know, when I look at people, I look at their whole lives and realize there's more to them than just this role that they're being paid to do right here. They're not in some little box. And being able to, from a coach's standpoint, which you'll see, Diana, is looking at a person more fully actually then informs their path in their work. Yeah, it's interesting sharing my intention to train as a coach with my colleagues or my friends because I think that coaching and feedback uh, and managing all get used as substitutes for each other in the way that if I tell a colleague or a friend that I want to train as a coach, they might imagine that I'm now going to uh, view them differently, view them apart from rather than alongside. And I wonder if you have any guidance for managing boundaries differently in personal relationships versus in uh, more structured relationships through coaching. You know, that's a tricky one that I've had to work with. And even having breakfast with my friend this morning, this was someone that is kind of a social friend who probably 15 years ago I did coach. Then we've reverted to more of a social friendship. And he's having a a transition time right now. So I guess I sort of feel my way into it. Sometimes when people will often say, oh, Jane, are you free for a walk? I sure could use a walk. (laughs) And I think, is this, do you want some coaching or should we just go as friends? And if it's friendship, I have to remember to bring myself to the conversation. If I'm coaching, I really don't bring as much of myself. It's really about the other. So it's... I have to be very conscious about what I bring to the conversation. That's so interesting. It's like uh, feeling out a willingness to reciprocate as well as saying that reciprocation is a way of enacting a more two-way relationship. So doing that on purpose can um, can shift it. I'm mainly thinking about uh, the fluidity of relationships where I already try to be helpful by sharing my stories. And that's a mode that's not coaching Um, But it has similar intent. And so how will I learn this new intent and practice setting new boundaries without ruining relationships? I think you'll find your way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this aspect of seeing someone as a whole person in the context of work and coaching, it's very interesting to me. And and I wonder, do, do you face challenges around that? Because for me, it was so exciting to have someone who wanted to know me as a whole person at work. Uh, But there have also been times when it's felt really scary to share my whole self. While I'm in a conference room with you, it's it's like, oh, no, but this is the place where I'm normally being a certain version of myself. So is it hard to get? people to allow you to see those other sides of themselves? You know, each person is different. So I walk in the room, and I take my lead from the person in front of me, from my client. You know, when I think about working with someone, I 
first start with them right where they are. And then I'm always trying to think, how does this person need to grow or expand? Or words I'll use is, we want to build out more neuron pathways in your brain. I know this is who you show up as. And you're not using enough of you. You know, people will signal to me if they want to share or not. I find it's useful, again, for the reasons I, I spoke of, but not everybody is there. And I'm thinking of a client that I worked with, and in fact, it was a problem. She was referred because her work was outstanding, excellent, couldn't be better. But when I did a 360 on her, interviewed people around her in lots of different ways, I've never heard a worse one. Not one person said anything about the work because that, that was squeaky clean. No one wanted to work with her. Part of it was she couldn't and wouldn't share anything personal and didn't want to know anything personal about you. Felt like asking how you were was a waste of time. We're all about work. Well, then people didn't want to work with her. And that one I really pushed to bring that out because I knew that not having relationships with people was going to be absolutely career limiting for her. So that's an example of one where I really pushed on the personal. Most people I, I don't. I let it unfold as it unfolds. One of the things I love about your perspective is that you really do focus on kind of expansion of oneself and the tools that you have at hand. And one of my fears for going into coaching was that I would have to change myself. You know, that coaching was about really becoming a totally different type of person who would fit in better in whatever environment I was in. And you really reframed my perspective on that, I think, right away. I wonder, is that another sort of resistance that you encounter? Yes. You know, I mean, there are people that show up and say, I am who I am. I can't change. But, of course, my first rule is, I, you know, I don't, I'm just dropping in here, you know. <laughs> first of all, if you don't want to work with me or somebody else, then that's absolutely fine, and we end right here. And then, you know, I'll often start with, what are we doing here? What do you want? So I can recognize that as a defense. And I think one of my gifts is I'm so unassuming. I'm so not a threat to people. And I'm short. I'm a little bit older than a lot of my clients. I'm female, so kind of big, burly men find me pretty easy to be with, actually. And then they're kind of surprised when I can call them on their stuff. So I think I can get them to to soften and trust me pretty quickly. And once I can feel that, then we have an opening to do some movement. You know that um, wonderful book um, that is what got you here won't get you there. And I quote that a lot because you're fantastic. Look where you are. And we want to build on this. And what other muscles, what other tools, what other neuron pathways can you use? 
I've been talking about that book a lot recently because it's specifically the part in the book where the author says, if you give a great idea, but it's not the recipient's idea, then the outcome's not going to be as great. And, you know, he has some estimate of the percentages of worseness uh, that result from that. But that's really where I'm at is that I'm very generative and I love doing that. But where are the limits of generativity versus sparking other people's generativity? Exactly. And it's so hard because you, at a certain point, you have great ideas or I can see where they are and I know how to get them there and just have to zip it and let each person live their own experience and do their own learning. Mm -hmm. I have another related question that I, I think speaks to how I came to coaching, at least. The question is, should we ask for help? So the context for this question is that I spent some time feeling pretty ashamed that I didn't know what I was doing, taking on new responsibility and feeling so excited and proud to have this new responsibility, and then becoming just completely overwhelmed and feeling like I was failing. And I think it's really hard to surface that and to know exactly who to trust with the information that you are feeling lost in your work. And so Diana was the one actually (laughs) who urged me to ask for help and to really think about exactly what I would need to keep going and to keep going and be happy about it and to really think big. And so I did ask for help and also had some solutions in mind, and and one of them was coaching. So, yeah, should we ask for help? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really hard one for me because I am one that, is a helper. And so sometimes that's the very hardest for me is to actually ask for help myself. And so that's a hurdle for me to get over as well. I really relate to that. And yet the thing that I hear from people more than anything, when they get in, the door is closed, they said, have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? I said, oh, yes, (laughs) yes, I have. (laughs) And, you know, everybody has that little voice inside them like, I can't do this. What if they find out? I'm totally faking this. Or as one of my very first young CEO founders said, I'm the CEO. I don't know what a CEO does. Am I doing CEO right? Of course, he's asking me. I have no idea either. (laughs) (laughs) So we all have those insecurities. And when we can ask for help, and sometimes that's just someone that can listen to us deeply and affirm and normalize. It's okay. You're going to be fine. Who else could you ask for help? Who else is a resource in this organization for you? Could you ask your team? Even hearing this is giving me some ideas for what I need to do right now. I have in a very flux, uh, fluxy situation right now with lots of moving parts in my life. Well, they're all moving at once. So I think that I 
try not to use the word overwhelm because I try to see my life as a place of agency and, you know, things are not done to me, I do things. And so I can shape the outcome there, but I really do feel overwhelmed. And so between trying not to articulate to someone random, I feel overwhelmed and just leaving that on the table where they can't really help because I'm not articulating a request for help. And also I don't feel better because I just expressed vulnerability with no positive outcome. Like, that's one side of things. But the thing I'm doing that is also not helpful is just kind of saying, well, I shouldn't say I'm overwhelmed to any of these people, so I guess I just won't say it at all, and then I'll just stay with all these moving parts kind of cranking inside me uncomfortably. Hmm. What makes you feel better um, when you're in that overwhelmed state? How do you move beyond that? My inclination is always to pick one area of life and just nail it so that at least I'm getting positive feedback somewhere. But I'm trying to move beyond needing positive feedback in order to exist serenely. I think that that's especially important to me now because I've set up a life where I am giving other people positive reinforcement, you know, and there's not like a, a it's not a even pyramid all the way up and down. Pyramid's the wrong word, but it's not like a tower where everybody gets the same amount at every level. It's like, you know, it really narrows at some point. And so I try to experience uh, happiness through efficacy. Like if I'm being effective, then I don't need words of affirmation. And that's something I'm trying to adapt to. But I think that now finding the area of my life where I'm most likely to get that like emergency positive reinforcement and doubling down on that is not necessarily the most effective thing because there are like five areas of my life. Like I'm planning a wedding. I have a job I really care about. I'm going to start training as a coach. We're doing should we. There are like three other things that I'm not even thinking about right now. <laughs> uh, <you know. laughs> I'll jump in the overwhelm box with you. Yeah, yeah, great. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, but I think that in most of those, I'm the boss, you know. I'm, uh, you know, my fiance and I are the bosses of our wedding. You know, Lisa and I are the bosses of should we. I'm not by any means a boss at work, but I do um, manage the product. So I'm responsible for a lot of the outcomes there. So I am trying to learn what recovering from overwhelm looks like if I can't just go to a place and be super effective and get a gold star from either the environment or a person. You might just check inside yourself rather than looking externally. Yeah. Yeah. You were describing kind of what you don't want to do in terms of talking about overwhelm and it seems like the difference between complaining and asking for help. Like some worry about complaining, which I, I worry about too. I don't want to be a whiner, you know. But I guess asking for help, as you were starting to describe, it comes with some direction to it, with some purpose and intention to make a change. I love that distinction. The question for me is always, who can I complain to so that I figure out what help I need to ask for? <laughs> That's me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what our Slack channel is for. <laughs> and we've got it recorded here. <laughs> so we do have one final question for you, which is, should we go on silent retreats? Oh, <laughs> did I tell you that I was just on one? Oh, I did. 
Well, I would say yes. If everyone would, excuse me if I say this, but fill out your ballot and then go on some silent retreat, I think the world would be a better place. So I I did mindfulness training in the late 90s and then have been an on and off again meditator ever since and part of a meditation group for many, many years. And I've done kind of one-day, three-day retreats. But I wanted to do a deeper dive. And so I went to Spirit Rock, which is here in Marin County and available to all. And it was very peaceful, a real reset. It puts things in perspective. It fills your heart with gratitude. I would say that's kind of the biggest part I came away with. When you're quiet with yourself, you can kind of sort out what action really matters. And so I feel a renewed sense of wanting to take action that for me seems very timely or urgent. And that's, for me, that's mostly around the planet and the way we live on it in community. Was this your first silent retreat or one of several? This was my first one at at Spirit Rock. And have you been on one yet? No, but I'd like to. Yeah. Uh, I had a friend, and for about three years, we've said, oh, yeah, this year, let's go on a silent retreat. I've been wanting to do that. Yeah, let's do that. And then in February, we met up again and said, oh, yeah, we were going to do that last year. And so in about May, she said, she texted me and said, I just signed up for this one. Join me. And I opened my computer. I clicked send, put in my money, and then, of course, closed the computer and didn't look at it. Figured October would never come. (laughs) And uh, we we kind of were concerned about going as friends to a silent retreat together. (laughs) One of the kind of things they advise is don't flirt, which means actually even have eye contact. So, you, of course, you do, but you're, the minute you have eye contact, your ego pops up and you start communicating in some way. And so uh, we really did make an effort to stay pretty internal and respected that as much as we could. Wow. Wow. I think it is so funny to think about doing it with a friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the two of you. <laughs> Would it even be possible <laughs> for us? I don't know. I really in having trouble deciding that as well because I think we would both try really hard. We're very disciplined, <laughs> but I don't know if we would succeed. We're also very forgiving. So <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> try again tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> That's, well, there are no hard and fast rules, really. So uh, I think you could do it. Thank you for the encouragement. And thank you for joining us today. This has been wonderful. Thank you for inviting me into your studio. I really enjoyed meeting you, Diana, and seeing you again, Lisa. Thank you, Jane. I enjoyed meeting you, too. Well, should we say our thank yous? We should. We have several of them. First of all, thank you to all of our Kickstarter backers who have made this season possible. Thank you to Yosh for his studio space and producing. Thank you to Math Times Joy for our wonderful new identity. And thank you to the band Canada for our theme song, Hey Garland. Should you tune in next time, we'll leave it to you. 